Hilarious. Hostile takeover of Pinterest. I'm coming yeah, I, for you. Hello and welcome once more to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, right there on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, and hopefully forever in your hearts and on your podcast apps, especially those modern podcast apps that we love, where you can do some podcasting 2.0. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osaski, phoning it in. Uh, from uh, an undisclosed location, and I'm uh, speaking as always uh, to my colleague David Clement. David, uh, David, how goes it now? I heard you do some barbecuing the other day. I did some barbecuing. I played my first round of golf. I'm going to play again on the weekend here. It's uh, things are things are good. Yeah, things are good, and we got a great episode. Two great guests um, for this week, uh, and another one confirmed for next week. So. Um, yeah, I'll let you preview the one guest, and I'll, uh, I guess I'll preview the other. Uh, Is that how we tag team it nowadays? Yeah, yeah. Who did, uh, who did we talk Bitcoin with? Uh, yeah, so we're, uh, gonna speak in the third block, uh, you wanna fast forward there to, uh, I guess around the, uh, what, 30 minute mark, we'll be speaking with, uh, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation, essayist at, uh, the, uh, Bitcoin Magazine, and uh, all-around uh, connoisseur of uh, human rights, uh, Bitcoin, economic liberty. Uh, there's all types of different things that are happening there with Alex. Uh, so great interview with him on just the potentials of Bitcoin for human freedom, uh, some great examples that he uses from around the world, uh, which are a bit, uh, I, I would say, a bit more attuned than the line go up, we all get rich lines that we normally hear. <laughs> to the moon. To the moon, uh, Lambo. Uh, so, I, yeah, it was very good conversation with him. You guys will hear that here in a bit. And uh, apart from that, David, I guess we got some some Canadian policy there on the on the deck. Yeah, we do. We um, we also have Member of Parliament uh, Raquel Dancho uh, on the program. Um, for those who don't know, she is one of the up and coming millennial class of uh, parliamentarians who were elected. Uh, in the 2019 election, and um, yeah, it's just it's really nice to have people our own age in the mix making some of the calls and trying to hold the government accountable. So um, yeah, great guest, her first appearance. I'm sure we'll have her back on the program um, as we uh, as we keep rolling here, Yael. Yeah, and look at that, uh, someone who graduated the same uh, same year as me from university in the same town, and um, looks like she's uh, she's in a better house than I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of uh, makes you kind of makes you go, oh dang, I'm not uh, not quite there yet, I guess. <laughs> yeah, two roads diverge in a narrow wood. Uh, yeah, so there's, I think there's there's a lot of funny stuff there. It's funny with the term millennial uh, because you know with a lot of our work, Consumer Choice Center. We're obviously a consumer uh, choice advocacy group, and you know we have to present ourselves to opinion editors, which I'd yes. love to rant about one day, but oh, uh, we will not do that on the radio. Uh, <laughs> maybe in the extended podcast version, uh, and Premium also meeting content. with lawmakers, um, you know, meeting with partner organizations, and you know, I had always sometimes, if it was necessary, if I saw that you know there were a couple of white hairs, I'd throw in the term millennial. I don't even know if that has as much purchase anymore. I think um, we got to have a couple of Zoomers now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but I do like 
it's one of those things where it's an overused term, but at least in the Canadian kind of political context, it's never been more relevant because the issues that divide Canadians, you see it um, so much so on that like millennial and then older than millennial divide. Um, so like a an interesting one is... Uh, leadership candidate for the Conservatives, Pierre Polyev, put out a housing video, which has, I don't know, probably half a million views already. And they it was so popular, they started doing some polling. And it was like 60-something percent of millennials, in air quotes, um, viewed the video and agreed with it and saw it very positively. Um, that number was lower. Um as people got older and it just kind of highlights it's not just housing it's the same with the cryptocurrency stuff there seems to be a, a real divide um in terms of the issues of the day between the folks who are a little older and the folks in our our demographics so it'll be interesting to see that dichotomy play out um over the next like election cycle i don't think the u.s is quite there um and i don't know if you have the same take, um, but I don't see U.S. politics really having that divide. There are obviously divides, but they're just they're not um, by age per se. Um, yeah, it's not old guard versus new guard. I would, yeah, I would say, um, and this is not to uh, rag on um, my home and native land. I just think there's a lot more diversity. Um, I mean, especially amongst political ranks, so that you have your leftist flavor urbanist, your leftist flavor, you know, rural person. You've got your, you know, union organizing, kind of center right culturally, this and that. And there, I think there's just so many different cleavages, just because the how big the country is, and how insane it is that you're supposed to represent, you know, 330 million people. Uh, by 500 in a particular house in one city. Uh, there's all kinds of things. I think I actually do prefer the Canadian model, which actually does devolve a lot of powers, or as uh, the the Scots used to say, Devo Max. <laughs> I don't I actually know what word you just said. <laughs> Devo Max. Devolution Maximum. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was uh, during, <laughs> during the Scottish referendum there a couple of years ago. That was the, the big thing. Like, we want more powers here locally. <laughs> yeah, um, which unfortunately failed, but there's you know there's a lot of interesting arguments there, and I think something that Canada does have just because of the provincial system and um, a lot of the uh, municipalities and all the like. Um, but yeah, you you were we're talking about voting, we're talking about this and that. I do have some uh, some good practical knowledge, David. Oh, okay. And this applies to both our audiences who are in Canada and in the United States. Uh, so I am registered to vote. Oh, uh, very nice. As far as I know, legally. Uh, in uh, in both elections. Yes, as a dual and, uh, citizen, you are entitled to that. Indeed, and I received my ballot, um, both for the U.S. I, I don't have that yet for uh, Canadian. There's only the sort of leadership election on the conservative side, and uh, I am registered, though, for, for the rest of the election. But uh, what's interesting about the uh, election in the U.S., this is with my local riding or my local congressional district, which is in North Carolina, uh, I can actually vote online, baby. Ooh, really? Yeah, it's something only for expats and um, military. Okay. Uh, so, you know, same battle. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> fighting for your freedoms abroad. Uh, but but yeah, you just uh, send in an email essentially with uh, a scan of your ballot of your choice. Uh, nice. And the thing is, is they receive f- so few of these, that particularly at my local can, office. They can handle it, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine it's more than 30 people who do this. Yeah. So you, you give it to the intern, um, and they are able to scan that pretty quickly. But very surprised. I just you know signed up online to say, you know, I'd like to have it sent to me, and uh, already got it in my nice. email inbox, and they, they sent me a paper version uh, by mail, which will take uh, probably two years to get here, but uh, <laughs> I will have, have that version. Um, and it just it's crazy to see, and I know most people do not have this experience of being able to vote in multiple elections, because obviously sometimes that's a bit shady, but, you know, as a citizen of both, I'm able to do so. But just fascinating to see how it works, you know, the different uh, board of elections or, um, you know, different counties and how that all that works out. So, yeah, I'll be uh, contributing my voice. I'm still an unaffiliated voter. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always on the fence, and I think swing voter. the district around. Am I a swing voter? Um, no. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really just, just looking for whoever gets rid of the Jones Act. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you can say I'm a single-issue guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a lot of fun there. And, you know, speaking of the Internet, millennials, Gen Z, uh, living online— uh, I think this just broke not long ago. Yeah, we got to talk about this. So uh, we've got our uh, Elon Musk, forever foe, uh, forever villain, forever good guy. Don't know. Depends on the day. Uh, in a securities filing dated Wednesday, the billionaire tech CEO proposed $54 a share for the social media giant Twitter, calling it his best and final offer. If it is not accepted, he would reconsider his position as shareholder. If you guys remember... Uh, he purchased like what nine percent of the company, whatever it was. Yeah, something like that. And he was going to take a board seat, but if he takes a board seat, he can only own so much of the company, and so he declined the board seat. And now he's essentially—I mean, he's offering quite a premium. I think it's like five dollars more per share than what it was trading, or maybe even more. I don't know. It's quite a big, quite a serious increase. So it's a serious proposal. He's not lowballing them. Pretty um, crazy to see that a guy who lives in a trailer you know, in rural Texas. Yeah, you know, I mean... Who is a billionaire by day, but has never really swung his wealth around, you know, external his own projects. But it's like in the last six months, he's just gone berserk, and he's he's taken out the, the T-shirt gun, you know, that you have at the sporting events, and he's just like, pop, pop, pop. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote uh, a character from the TV show Billions, and, and Yael, you're going to have to edit my swear words out. Um... But one of the best scenes was Bobby Axelrod, the lead character, goes, what's the point of having f*** you money if you never say f*** you? <laughs> yeah, I'll have to do that in post. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, true. True. Yes. And so that's where the Elon Musk... $43 billion dollar hostile takeover, uh, takeover of Twitter is how it's being framed. Yeah, and to take them private, um, so that obviously changes the the structure of the company whether or not they would go public ever again i don't know um so i mean it's a really interesting development uh if your right-wing conservative media is loving it because they think that that it will be the return of free speech um i don't i'm not as optimistic as they are and then left-wing twitter it thinks this is like a oligarch controlling 
the media or something. I don't know. They're, they're freaking out. It, it, they are full blown hyperventilating right now, um, and obviously they they are also wrong. Um, but I mean, it is interesting. Actually, to, you know, it it it's a bit ridiculous though, because this is like maybe the if we look at the top ten social media platforms, I think Twitter's down at number nine in terms of users. Yeah. You know, Pinterest has more users. Yeah. Yeah, Snapchat exactly. or something like that. Well, and <laughs> so it's hilarious. Hostile takeover of Pinterest. I'm coming yeah, I, for you. <laughs> I mean, in, in in for the people who are like, oh, I'm going to leave Twitter. This is unacceptable. It's like, well, I hope you delete your TikTok account. <laughs> because, oh, gee, I mean, TikTok is, yeah, I think TikTok, at last glance, 600, uh, 700 million people around the world. And the yeah. thing about Twitter is in, it's, God, we're doing it again. <sighs> We mentioned it last week, and we're doing it again. Twitter is not real life. Yes. Uh, but for certain people, media policy elite, uh, yeah. cultural types, it is the megaphone that they like to use. So big signal. I think this might be just Elon's way of, of maybe tanking it. Because well, isn't it, I mean, look, I'm no corporate lawyer, but if they, the company always has to act in the best interest of the shareholders, that would yes. kind of be in the best interest of the shareholders if everybody got an immediate payday. So they can't technically say no. Well, yeah, they. I mean, I don't know the law here, but I mean, they have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. And if he's offering such a premium, I mean, it's that it's difficult. It would be difficult to justify saying no. And I don't know how much. Like, I don't know how much how much of the shares are retail. Where like does the board itself control more than the fifty percent needed for this to pass? Um, I don't know. I'd have to look at the breakdown. But I think if you probably put it to retail investors, whether you've been in Twitter for a long time or you invested a week ago, I mean, I bet you most of those people are gonna would vote yes. I'll take a quick return, thirty percent, boom, done. <laughs> so I mean. It's all the better because then that means Jack uh, Dorsey there, who's uh, still has a significant amount of stock there in Twitter. He just takes it all and throws it into Bitcoin, and the yeah. price just goes way up. And then we're all rich. So uh, there we go. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that this is going to be kind of fun and interesting. Again, I know there's a lot of uh, we need an entire segment on this, and I'd love to get a a pro. Uh, break up all the tech companies person on to kind of discuss this in more detail. There's a lot of people who say that, you know, there's too much control of these things and there is no real competition online. I think that's an absolute joke. There are all kinds of platforms. Yeah. I know because I'm there. Uh, I am lonely. So you guys are always free to join. <laughs> uh, but yeah, much more to come here at Consumer Choice Radio. Unfortunately, got to go to our uh, our great interviews. So you guys uh, stay tuned and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM. Uh, I have the pleasure of, uh, of introducing our next guest, uh, her first appearance on Consumer Choice Radio, a conservative MP for, for Kildonan St. Paul in Manitoba, Raquel Dancho. Thank you very much for joining us on CCR. Great to be here, David. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I mean, right off the bat, I've noticed a trend here where some of the younger conservative members of parliament um, have very loudly and very passionately, and in my opinion, very accurately highlighted the extent of the housing crisis and the unaffordability issue 
in Canada. Is is that something that you feel will continue to carry on and become um, something that the Conservative Party as a whole embraces? Oh, I think definitely. Uh, we have a whole host of millennial MPs who were elected in the 2019-2021 election who are very uh, loud and proud about representing their generation, also representing the needs of all Canadians. And certainly we're seeing an inflation crisis, cost of living, and then housing. Millennials are the age where we're supposed to be buying our homes and sort of setting up our long-term retirement plans in that way, raising a family, having more space. And yet uh, the data is telling us that half of our generation will likely never own a home, which is pretty shocking given that Canada is the second largest landmass on earth plenty of space to build homes. Millennials are the most educated, fully employed, dual income households, um, you know, ever. And it's really shocking that after all that school we put ourselves through, we still can't buy homes, for example. So I, I think that this is a serious problem that's not going to go in a way away anytime soon. And um, with the Liberal government, we, we hear day after day, we're doing so great, we're spending all of this money on housing, those Conservatives don't support our initiatives. Well, in the six years that Trudeau has been in power, home prices have doubled. So I would argue that his policies have been a resounding failure and perhaps have even contributed to the rising cost of living and, and housing in this country. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one, the, the way I viewed what they've put together it just feels like trying to tinker with demand and, and in many senses kind of sidestepping the, the elephant in the room, which is supply. They've touched on it a little bit, but it's I think it comes out to be 10% of what Ontario alone needs in terms of um, a housing increase. Um, we've seen this develop now in the leadership race. Um, a couple of the leadership contenders uh, have started to talk about housing. Um I'll leave this as very open-ended because uh, I, I know that you have not endorsed a, a candidate for conservative leader uh, yet. Um, but how, how do you view the, the leadership campaign as it's unfolding now? What do you look for in um, whoever is going to be the next leader of the conservative party? You know, I think people are, are experiencing after, you know, two years of the pandemic and six years of, of the Trudeau liberals in power, there's a lot of alienation that's been going on. And then you compound that with high inflation, cost of living is increasing, housing has is, is doubled in six years. You're getting a lot of alienated, angry people that are facing economic challenges, and in particular, the millennial generation that's feeling really left behind by their by their federal government, by, by governments generally. And so I think um, a candidate of the moment who's tapping into those grievances and is offering a bold voice for that solutions. That's what I was looking for a number of months uh, months ago when, when this leadership race started. I thought, you know, we really need somebody bold with a clear vision that can inspire people and, and speak to their needs, meet them where they're at. Uh, and I think that there may be a bit of a generational shift as well. Um, we're seeing a lot of young people take a lot of interest in the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race. Um, they're the most impacted. We're seeing a number of, uh, of candidates, uh, Scott Aitchison, Pierre Polyev, really talk about and dig into the housing issue, uh, which is, again, of the moment. So I think the Conservatives were at a time where we could seize this opportunity and really speak to the issues of the day. And I think that there's a number of candidates that are, that are doing that quite effectively. Yeah, and, and the, the big thing that, that we've seen from, from Pierre and Scott so far is um, being bold enough to call out policies like exclusionary zoning 
um, which is really limiting the housing stock. And um, for Scott going so far as kind of calling himself a Yimby, uh, which for the housing folks was quite exciting. Um, do you see do you see zoning? I mean, obviously, it's a, a portion, but do you see it as, as the core problem here in terms of what's holding Canada back? I think there's a number of issues, but um, certainly at the civic level, there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape for developers to create residential areas, to create more housing. It's much quicker. We see all the data tells us that it's much quicker to build anything just south of the border and a lot cheaper to do so. Uh, coming to Canada, not a great place to 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 build anything, it seems, these days, which is, you know, I think speaks to the Trudeau government's philosophy, but also uh, when we get down to the civic level, the bureaucratic red tape we're seeing, certainly that has an impact. Uh, I think there's a number of things that have an impact, though, as well. Um, you know, immigration or our population growth is growing very, very quick. I'm a supporter of immigration. It's it's important to grow our population. Uh, but at the same time, we need to look at when we're bringing in 1% of our population every year, are we doing the work at the civic level to ensure we're building housing supply for all those new people coming in? Are we building schools and roads and wastewater treatment plants and hospitals to the capacity that we need? Are we building our neighborhoods? Are they equipped for that kind of influx? Um, and if the answer is no, then there needs to be changes made to more rapidly develop our cities and our suburban areas. And so I think that there's a, a lot of different issues. And I think that it was compounded during the pandemic. I think people who are kind of wanting to move into a bigger space were definitely motivated to do so after being stuck perhaps in a small apartment or condo for so long. I know that was the case with my uh, husband and I are like, okay, now it's time to go to upsize because we're stuck here all the time. And I think that just compounded uh, across the country as well. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Member of Parliament Raquel Dancho. The uh, The question I think is for the upcoming election season, for uh, you know, leadership elections, uh, there's a lot of ideas that are being tossed around, particularly in the conservative camp. There are a lot of nonprofit organizations, pressure groups. Uh, there's a lot of different flavors of conservatism that evolve around Canada, and we are one of the most decentralized federations. Um, just a question as to your experience, you know, coming from Manitoba, being in the scene there in Ottawa, uh, what, are, what do you think are the core messages of conservatism that unite many of the provinces and, and many of the people who are a part of the party and those who might not yet be in the party uh, that you think resonate with people? This is the million dollar question, isn't it? What can unite the right and bring in those centrist voters that are switchers? I uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I don't know if any of them are the right ones, but I think certainly uh, my, my background experience is quite unique. I grew up in rural Manitoba to four generations of farmers, and then I moved to Montreal to attend McGill University, a very liberal place. So I have uh, kind of a mixed view. My politics is heavily influenced by my background, of course, like most people. And I would say that there's a lot more that unites Canadians than divides them. But when you have a liberal government in power. Uh, we see this consistently, at least with Trudeau's when they're in power. Uh, they're very effective at dividing the country, alienating the West, firing up Quebec separatists. Uh, rural versus urban is, uh, is, is a growing issue in terms of divide and, and worldview. Um, but for someone to unite the right, I think something that unites everybody on the right side is fiscal responsibility, first and foremost. And we're seeing none of that over the last number of years. Many people could argue we needed to spend all that money I would say we spent more money per capita than in any other country in the world. So maybe it was a bit much. It certainly influences inflation. People are concerned about government uh, deficits right now. And that's not always the case. It wasn't the case before the pandemic. But now the Liberal government has effectively normalized $58 billion deficits. There were headlines, oh, responsible budget. I'm like, are we looking at the same 
deficit. Um, so I think that that's something that will ultimately bring conservatives together. It's it's time to focus on uh, reducing taxes, but also being fiscally responsible. It's getting too expensive to live in Canada. We're not planning well for the future. So I would say that one certainly unites us. And then a secondary one, I would say to some extent, though it's been challenged a little bit during the pandemic, is, is freedom. It means different things to different people, perhaps religious freedom, perhaps um, freedom to be an entrepreneur, a business owner, free, freedom over your own body. Um, but freedom in general, that sort of individual autonomy to decide how you're going to live your life in a free country like Canada uh, should be uniting for all Canadians. Um, but certainly, I think to to the right, it's uh, it's something that we that is very important to us as well. Well, as a graduate of Concordia, I don't blame you for going to McGill. Um, but, oh, uh, Concordia. <laughs> yeah. Nice. One, one quick thing I had on that is what do you think the, the main lesson is that Canadians have learned after the pandemic when it comes to the relationship to government? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I, I think that there is a lot of folks who put a lot of trust in government generally or don't really think about it. You know, the government puts out something that's, okay, that's what we're going to do. But there was certainly, uh, we saw a bit of a challenge on that in the last two years. I think that's that's not a, that's not a su surprising, but we saw folks like classic examples early on is like, this doesn't transmit easily person to person, the virus, the masks don't work, like all closing borders is crazy. And then we saw very much that that wasn't the case. Um, vaccines, for example, as well, we brought them in, it was supposed to be a two dose kind of thing. And then we're one and done for the rest of our lives. Uh, we also were told vaccines stop you from getting it and spreading it. We also know that's not the case. Um, so there's a lot of things government tried really, really hard, our government scientists and healthcare professionals tried really hard and used the best science they could. But when you say something and it impacts people at every level of their life, where they can stand, what they can put on their bodies, what they have to put in their bodies, who they can have at their own home, if they can get married and have funerals, all types of things. I think that ups the pressure on a government official to make uh, the right decision. And in a very evolving situation like the pandemic, there was a lot of mistakes made. Hindsight's 2020. But I think the anyone who is a suspect of government or skeptical, I think that was cranked up significantly. And uh, for other populations who maybe really, really trust government regulation, Perhaps it was a time where they just kind of let go of the wheel and say, government, just tell me what to do. And I think that divide, we were seeing that manifest in its most extreme form in the protests that took over Ottawa's downtown parliamentary area a couple months ago. So now's the time to sort of bring people together. And I think for government to step back a little bit and let people have responsibility over their own lives again and hopefully get back to some normalcy. Yeah, I'm curious if... Um... This certainly wouldn't be the case for everybody, but I'm curious if that message, that freedom message may resonate more so now with Canadians again in their own way, just for the sole reason of a lot of people are exhausted by all of the rules, the changing of the rules. Yael talked at length about the original noble lie and telling people not to wear masks and then masks became mandatory and it was like, well, the data originally from Taiwan was showing that they were good. It, you would have, we would have done public health a lot of good, both from a frustration point and a COVID perspective. Um, we have about two minutes left here, and you mentioned the switchers, and and this is where fiscal restraint. And I had the same view looking at the headlines. It seems to me like the era of Paul Martin and Chrétien for liberals is gone, 
And I'm, I'm wondering if you think that there are maybe some of those um, centrist or, or blue uh, liberals who may be looking for a new home watching um, our kind of fiscal standing deteriorate. Yeah, I'm actually looking at two groups of people. Blue liberals is one of them. So someone who maybe often we, we find people people may describe themselves so i'm socially liberal but fiscally conservative and they tend to switch between parties they would have voted for harper in 2011 but perhaps have since voted trudeau since 2015 Uh, and now they're getting worried about tax increases inflation cost of living deficits things like that and i think you're bang on that is an opportunity for us particularly to talk in the leadership race and then whoever our new leader is to really say we're the ones that are going to be responsible stewards of the of the fiscal purse Uh, as we have been, as conservatives are, it's really part of our, our it's it's part of our being across the country and has been us for, for many, many years. So that's one sort of is the switchers there, the perhaps conservative uh, liberal switchers. But there's another group of people I think is quite interesting. It's some, uh, perhaps you can describe blue collar NDP voters that may vote the way that their union votes, provincially NDP, federally liberal, perhaps. Um, I don't think those folks, uh, but also federally NDP, I don't think those folks are identifying at all with the message from the NDP leader, and they certainly don't like Justin Trudeau. I think that that's a real area of growth that conservatives can lean into hardworking, everyday Canadians who build the country around us who have been completely left behind by this sort of woke college federal NDP, I would describe them in their policies, I think. And then the liberals who are kind of eating the NDP's lunch on that as well. Um, There's a whole host of hardworking men and women in this country who are without a home. And I think that that's a real opportunity for growth for conservatives. I think be very proud to represent the demographic. Well, thank you very much for for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. We will have to have you back as the, the leadership race unfolds. And Um, whenever we do get another uh, general election. So thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Great, uh, great to be here. Happy to come back anytime. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America. And we're ready for our next interview. We're speaking with Alex Gladstein. He's the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, an essayist at Bitcoin Magazine, and author of Check Your Financial Privilege Inside the Global Bitcoin Revolution. Alex Goodman, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Perfect. Well, um, anytime that we have anyone on who uh, is going to talk to us about uh, cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, um, I have to go ahead and play this clip from our Bill Maurer. Putin is bad, very, very, very bad, but he's still better than the guy who brings every conversation around to Bitcoin. And for today's show, uh, that'll be you. <laughs> uh, so you have this brand new book out. Uh, you're fresh off from the Bitcoin 2022 conference. I know that uh, your panel specifically dealing with uh, the sort of human freedom case for Bitcoin was very well received. Uh, If you could just kind of sum it up, because we do hear a lot on this program and others on the radio about the potentials for Bitcoin, particularly when it comes to economic freedom, but we don't often hear about human rights and human freedoms. Uh, What is your sort of bullish case uh, for how Bitcoin could increase uh, the kind of human freedom aspect? Sure. Yeah. Down in Miami, I was on a panel with Yunmi Park, a North Korean human rights activist, uh, Farida Naburema, who's a democracy advocate from Togo, and Fadi al-Salamin, who's a Palestinian anti-corruption uh, activist and journalist. And the three of them were all just 
talking about and educating the audience about how money is broken in the country that, that they come from, basically, where it's used as a weapon against the people, where it's debased or demonetized or restricted for some, but not others. And it was a good reminder for the audience and for the world, I think, that you know most people have money problems every day uh, on this planet. About 7 billion people live under a weak currency or an authoritarian regime that can simply just freeze a bank account or financial service or, you know, demonetize a note or, you know, debase a currency quite easily. Only about a um, billion people or so live under a liberal democracy with property rights, FDCI insurance, and, 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 uh, and like a strong currency. So I think that unfortunately, most of the Bitcoin critics, you know, they, they come from this place of financial privilege and it blinds them to understanding why people around the world need Bitcoin. So we went through that on the panel and that's indeed the theme of my book. And we also came out with like a short animated film that we played right before the panel, which ironically quotes Bill Maher uh, in it. Cause you know, Bill is one of these people who's again, blinded by his dollar privilege, essentially. He, you know, can't understand why someone want Bitcoin because he's never had any problems with his money before. But the reality is, again, that the overwhelming majority of the people on this planet have horrible problems with money. And, and Bitcoin is, 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 is there to help them in a way that none of, none of its critics ever are. Like, you know, you have all these people who spend all this time criticizing Bitcoin on the internet. What have they ever done for somebody in Lebanon or Argentina or Turkey? Zero, nothing. Meanwhile, Bitcoin's helping millions of people in those countries every day. So that's kind of what I would say about that. All right. And, and the specific examples that you mentioned, uh, surely of Lebanon and Turkey, uh, very prescient at this moment. Uh, we have terrible inflation numbers. Uh, you know, they just kind of dwarf anything that we have in the United States. Um, for those uh, specific cases that you mentioned in your book, how exactly are people using it in these countries? Is it a way of uh, interacting among themselves? Is it a way of getting remittances from other countries? How is that? How is Bitcoin actively being used? Yeah, so I mean, first they use it as digital gold. They use it as a savings account. Uh, one person I profiled in Cuba, in communist Cuba, she's been stacking sats, as they say, or you know, putting aside a little bit of Bitcoin uh, for the last two two years now, a little more than two years. And she's doing so well that she's now supporting some of her family in the United States. And this is a lower income, you know, public sector worker in a collapsing uh, economy. But she's been diligent about um, saving in Bitcoin and using it as her bank account. And Bitcoin has, you know, fortunately for her, uh, gone up about 10x relative to the dollar in that period of time. And, and she's done very well, you know, there. So first and foremost, as a savings account. And second of all, as like essentially digital cash or, you know, kind of like a payment rail. So people that, for example, use Bitcoin to get income or donation or revenue into a, into a restricted closed off place, whether it be in the West Bank, for example, or Gaza, or whether it be in a closed uh, non-convertible currency regime, like any of the countries in the West African uh, colonial Franc region, or perhaps even in Afghanistan. So I kind of swept through a lot of these examples in the book and talked to people. And I found out that, yeah, I mean, they're basically using it either as a savings account 
um, that they control, that whether they are their own bank, or or they're using it as kind of like a bridge between two monies to get to get money from one place to another in a world where that would otherwise be impossible. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation and author of the new book, Check Your Financial Privilege Inside the Global Bitcoin Revolution. Uh, and Alex, you were at the Bitcoin 2022 conference. As we mentioned, there was a ton of panels, lots of content all available over there on YouTube uh, that people can go and look, particularly that video that you mentioned before your panel. Uh, were there any innovations, uh, reveals of projects or, or things that you are interested in that you think are is actually going to help further the cause of Bitcoin when it comes to human freedom in some of these countries? Or were many of the things more positioned in a more developed economy that's using Bitcoin a lot more like the United States or a place like Canada? Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of the content obviously was sort of corporate and um, targeted at institutions. And, you know, I think that that's a natural outcome of Bitcoin's success is that institutions and Wall Street and governments are all going to get into Bitcoin. Um, the cool part is there's nothing they can do to stop the freedom technology inside Bitcoin. Um, by the very nature of them getting involved in Bitcoin, they strengthen the positive network effects that bring in more interest, more developers, more graphic designers, more wallet builders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think one of the you know, interesting parts to the conference, though, is that it's just so vast. And th there was an open source stage, which ran uh, for three days straight and had all kinds of remarkable open source innovations. And that's where I kind of found some of the most, uh, I think, relevant things for the work I'm doing with activists. One talk in particular was given by a guy named Obi Nwosu, who is, is uh, created an exchange called CoinFloor in the United Kingdom. And he also works uh, on Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z's new uh, B-Trust board, where they're going to be allocating tens of millions of dollars to support Bitcoin infrastructure in Africa and in India. And um, uh, a federated features than, than normal Bitcoin in some ways, like you could have full privacy, for example, it'd be like anonymous e-cash. Um, but you'd be trusting like a set of guardians who are kind of holding the keys to this Bitcoin. The cool part is, though, if you know the guardians in person and they're part of your community, they're not likely to screw you over. So this idea of like federated custodianship of Bitcoin communities, I think is really powerful. It's, it's what's driving... Um, the architecture inside Bitcoin Beach's wallet down in, in El Salvador, in El Zante, which I've been down, I've used and I visited. And I think this is part of the future where you basically have kind of federated Bitcoin communities um, run by trusted locals um, in towns, villages and, and, and neighborhoods around the world. So I thought that idea was very persuasive. Yeah, that's great. And if, um, you know, Alex mentioned open source. If you're listening to this on your modern podcast app, Podcasting 2.0, feel free to give a boost. Uh, we are giving a split to Alex and the Human Rights Foundation uh, for any of the Satoshis that we received today. Uh, been a proud adopter uh, since, uh, I believe, around January. Still trying to promote that a little bit. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the Human Rights Foundation's uh, Developers Fund. Uh, you have an entire Bitcoin development fund. Uh, we'll link to the website, obviously. And uh, since 2020, the Human Rights Foundation has launched this fund to support software developers, just like you were talking about. There's all types of different projects here. 
Uh, what are some of the, the perhaps the key projects that the Human Rights Foundation has supported with this? Sure. So we focused on um, privacy and usability. So when it comes to development, we've done kind of a split between um, actual software development where we're paying out grants to like uh, individuals either contributing to Bitcoin Core or different implementations of Bitcoin uh, or people building wallets. And then we've also allocated some funding for uh, translation of Bitcoin materials into different languages, uh, educational work, events, et cetera, et cetera. So some so more like kind of social development. Um, on the technical side, I'll just note a couple projects that we've been proud to support. Um, one would be the Moon Wallet, M-U-U-N. It's a wallet based out of Argentina. And about a year and a half ago, we gave them a grant. Um, the, the, they've grown a lot since then. And I, I just find their wallet extremely compelling when it comes to a non-custodial, a non KYC open source Bitcoin Lightning wallet. I kind of feel like they've hit the right um, combination of trade-offs to make a really beautiful user experience. So we're very proud of that support. Um, we've also supported um, privacy implementations like Join Market and CoinSwap, which I think are still pretty, you know, in their in their infant stages in terms of number of users and usability, but they keep improving. And then these are basically, let's say. Bitcoin modifications that allow you to, again, have more privacy uh, in the system. So we support it a lot in that area, and we look, support, we look forward to supporting more in the future. Well, that's great. Yeah, all kinds of different developments there, all types of different projects. Uh, definitely recommend the Moon Wallet. I know we, uh, we were speaking to a couple of legislators earlier this week, and many of us were asking uh, what exactly they can download and how they can use Bitcoin. What's the simplest app? Uh, Moon was actually top of the list, uh, made it very, very easy for them. Uh, so Alex, in closing, um, you know, many people have, are hearing about Bitcoin for the first time with this sort of freedom narrative, uh, particularly when it comes to human flourishing, not just about line goes up. Uh, what's your sort of next message of optimism that you can give to, to people who would love to adopt Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, I imagine most people listening to this show um, are attracted to Bitcoin by number go up, the price is the greatest teacher. Every couple of years, it, it tends to have this cyclical nature where it's inelastic supply meets a rising elastic demand. And the price you know, goes to a new level and it brings all kinds of folks in. And I think that's great. But I think what's also important to understand and what's kind of exciting is that number go up is inextricable from freedom go up. And the more people that get into Bitcoin, the stronger it gets. And this decentralized open source scarce currency that governments and corporations can't control grows in power and it grows in its ability to help people around the world. So, you know, I'm, I'm focused on, on this, on, on advocating for this tool uh, as something that all human rights activists and really all people should be able to understand and use. And um, I think the next uh, couple of years are going to be very bright and, and, you know, it gives me a lot of hope in a world that's otherwise quite dark. That, that we have this collaborative, peaceful innovation coming out that's open to everybody on the planet. Um, so yeah, my book details a lot of this. Hope you can check it out. And look, I really appreciate you having me on today. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Alex Gladstein, we'll link to his book. Check it out. It is Check Your Financial Privilege Inside the Global Bitcoin Revolution. We'll be right back here on Consumer Choice Radio. Putin is bad, very, very, very bad, but he's still better than the guy who brings every conversation around to Bitcoin. Bitcoin.